Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, it is time to go red for women again. Hopefully more of us know what I mean when I say that each year. If not, well, that's what our guests are here for. We welcome today Elise Bryson. She is an ambassador for the American Heart Association and their Go Red for Women campaign, as well as Rose Laporte. She is a cardiac nurse practitioner with CHI Franciscan Health. And both have been cardiac patients. Elise and Rose, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to have you today because I want to keep talking about this issue of heart disease and how it affects women especially. But this is a disease that pretty prevalent. I mean, we could talk the whole half hour about the heart and heart disease and statistics, I guess, and um, how it affects people. But, you know, it's important we talk about that, but I want to get to, you know, besides how many and how big it is, uh, what we should do about it. But I guess I'll start with <laughs> a little bit of that. It is such a big, the scope of the thing, it needs to be talked about, right? Otherwise, people slough it off. I, I don't think that affects me. How big, a, what are we talking? Well, it does, you know. Heart disease is the number one killer of women, and it affects one in three women's lives are affected by heart disease in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is bigger than we think. I mean, does it kill more people than uh, breast cancer? Yes. Um, Heart disease is the number one uh, cause of death for both men and women, and it has been for many years. Than all cancers, right? For women in in particular, it's um, the... uh, kills more people than all types of cancer combined. And wow. can we include stroke in that too when we talk about so, cardiac health and Basically, oh. yes, we're talking about cardiovascular health disease, heart mm-hmm. disease or cardiovascular disease which is heart um, heart attack and stroke and many other kinds of heart problems. And is it uh, well, let's talk about why we're here with talking about go red for women. Is it a different concern for women than men when you talk about um, I don't know percentages or the population, or is it just that women don't know enough about it or something, or is the, I don't know, is all the medical community and the media, st- when we talk about a heart attack or, or heart disease, always have a man and a guy puffing an old cigar, and then we think, well, that's who it affects. I mean, why are we talking women? Go Red for Women. What's this about? Well, the the Go Red campaign actually started like um, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I think, and it was mainly to raise awareness for women because women used to think that heart disease did not affect them, that it was a man's disease. And the Go Red campaign is um, was to promote awareness and to help with fundraising for research that we could include research on women. The majority of the research, medical research historically, had been done on men. We didn't have any information on women, and it, it does affect just as many women as men, and it affects women differently. And that it's preventable then, right? I mean, uh, for the most part, you can do something about your heart health. Am I right, Elise? <laughs> you can. Uh, you know, it's 80% of it is preventable with uh, diet and exercise and just taking good care of yourself. Well, and you and Go Red for women, National Wear, Wear Red Day, right? That's coming up this Friday? November 3rd. November. I mean, February. February third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it affects your brain as I'm well. I'm really behind or really far in advance. <laughs> yeah, that's I think. good. <laughs> uh, we'll give you one there at least. February. Okay. February. This Friday, February third. Wear red, right? Yes. And yes. so as we wear red, maybe maybe twenty people in the office will be wearing red, and somebody will say, well, "Why is everybody wearing red? Should I have heard about a memo?" Then that's what it's all about, right? That's it the is. raising awareness part. It yeah. is. 
And you're an ambassador. What does that mean? You get to tell your story to people? Yeah, and the fact that I have one is a surprise to me, you know. As she was talking about the fact that it affects women, um, I had heart surgery and I had a stent put in in August of 2015 and I was 40 years old at the time. So I certainly didn't think that um, heart disease applied to me. Yeah, had you... That's well, let me back that up then with the before that, had you even thought about it on your own personal level? Had you had other people in your family and you said, Oh, heart disease one of these days or did it even enter your mind? It didn't even enter my mind and I didn't think that it ran in my family. I did find out uh after the fact that my grandmother on my mother's side was actually the first woman to have open heart surgery in Washington State. Oh, okay. Um but that's something that I didn't know, uh and I didn't certainly didn't think that it was going to affect my life. Yeah, you look young and healthy, and when we we think, well, that's fine, because the heart's on the inside. We don't know what's going on in there, right? So what kind of heart condition did you have? Uh, if we're talking cardiovascular health, there's a lot of parts to that. What, what There is. What? I had blockage in my LAD, which is the artery on the left, and it was um, when they when I went in and had a stress test and had a heart echo, it was over 90% blocked. Wow, that sounds bad. It, very I'm not a, bad. I'm not a doctor or a nurse. <laughs> we have a cardiac nurse practitioner here. 90% blockage, should it be zero? What's a perfect heart? Well, zero would be great. Um, it's unlikely um, that the majority of, of the population has actually zero. So some part of your uh, Some minor calcium some... deposits. We called it mild, um, uh, that it doesn't cause any symptoms when it's really low, like a, a number of less than 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, anything above 70% blockage in an artery is considered significant enough to cause symptoms, to cause heart attack, and even worse. What kind of symptoms did you have then that made you see this doctor and have uh, the stress test on your heart? Had you had some ongoing things going on, or was this a regular health exam? Uh, Upkeep exam. I'd had some things going on. It was really strange. When I look back now, I see more of the signs in hindsight than than I saw at the time. What it started with in the months leading up to going in and having a stress test was I noticed that my gums were bleeding a lot. I noticed that I was tired. I noticed that I was out of breath at weird moments. Not like I could work out and be fine, but then on a different day, I could make my bed and be winded. And that's really strange. Uh, as the months went on, I noticed that I started started to have um, some pain, actually, in the left side, um, kind of in my chest, armpit area. Um, and I just, I noticed all those things, but i a very busy person. I was big career. I was running a company, single mom. My son was a senior in high school. We were getting ready to relocate. There was a lot going on and uh, stopping for a few minutes to go check out these silly symptoms is what I thought was not something I put on my priority list. Now, let me just then, here's a general, uh, what do you call it, stereotype of a man on on women. Uh, Women are so busy, they run the thing. A man might say, I I seem to have some symptoms here. A woman being so busy, you're running the house, you're running your business, you're taking care of other people. You put that on the back burner. Is that typical, do you think? Is that what the American Heart Association says? Hey, women, sit up and take notice. These are not typical everyday things pay attention is is this something women is this why it's different for women and men it is and and you know as 
we've said earlier, historically, this has been considered a man's disease. So the symptoms that women have can be different than men. Most people recognize the the term elephant sitting on my chest, you know, that's what men typically feel. Yeah, she didn't describe that, though. She didn't. And she did say one thing that is very common among women, which is shortness of breath and fatigue. Um, women have different symptoms. And some of that, we really don't know why. Um, and they're very easy symptoms to put off. They're things that you might attribute to something else. So I'm just extra tired. I didn't sleep last night. Or, you know, I'm, I'm really out of shape. And that's why I'm short of breath. When, in fact, these are things to really pay attention to when um, you have them on a routine basis. Or they seem to be getting worse over time. And can be unex- you really can't explain them. Yeah. Well, let's go over them again then. So some of the typical warning signs that women should pay attention to. Clearly chest discomfort. We A lot of times we'll say chest pain and people don't really have chest pain. They have discomfort. They have tightness. Most women, when they talk about chest tightness, they actually talk about their bra. And they say, it feels like my bra is too tight or I still have my bra on when I've taken it off. Mm. And that's that's something obviously men wouldn't say. Um, so chest discomfort, shortness of breath, feeling tired, um, some heart palpitations, skips, jumps in their heartbeat, um, nausea, upset stomach, vomiting. Really? Um, any of those things, particularly when they're all combined at the same time. Yeah, and some other things that I had um Towards the summer, about a month before I actually went in for a stress test, I woke up, ironically, the morning after I turned 40, and I, I thought I had the flu. I got up, and I was dizzy, and my the sh- tops of my shoulders were kind of tingly, and the thing that I really noticed was that I was sweating profusely, uh, and it was uh, like a cold, icy sweat. It wasn't hot, and uh, so I hopped into the shower and got out and got dressed, and it, it was still happening, and I was like, wow, I, I think I have the flu. I probably shouldn't go into work and give it to everybody else. So instead, I went back to bed and went to sleep, which is probably not something you're supposed to do. Um, but I did. And later that night, I did end up in the emergency room. And, um, you know, they ran a bunch of tests, chest x-rays. My blood pressure was fine. My cholesterol was fine. So the normal maybe signs that that medically they would look for at that point hadn't, there was nothing indicating that it was my heart. Huh. Wow. So, Rose, you have your own story. You, I you're do. a cardiac patient. Well, did I you do. have a blockage like she did? Is no, this typical? Well, there's no. different kinds of heart disease. So, you know, the heart, there are a lot of different kinds of heart problems you can have. Most people, when we talk about heart disease, we're talking about coronary artery disease, um, which is what, what she has, um, The um, that's which is the most common kind of heart problem. You can have heart valve problems. You can have um, weakened heart muscle. And what I had, which is an irregular heart rhythm, and I actually had that for many years, um, was treated basically with medication at first. And it got to a point where that was not working, and I had to have an actual procedure called a cardiac ablation. Cardiac ablation. So your heart rhythm, the the beating of the The heart. The beating of my heart, yeah. Was was odd. Did that manifest itself in similar symptoms very, as Elise described? Very different or? symptoms. Okay. Um, so my symptoms actually started out with I could just feel the sensation of my heart beating, and you're not supposed to feel your heart beating. Mine was beating very fast and beating very irregular, and um, it also created symptoms of dizziness, lightheadedness, like I was going to pass out, um, being very tired. 
And um, these, I was 20 years old when this started, and obviously 20 years old, and I was very active. I was a, um, a, you know, in fitness at the time, and that was very different for someone my age. And um, so I, I actually had worked for a cardiologist, so I, I mentioned it, and he said, oh, let's do an EKG, which is just the electrical tracing of your heart. It's one of the basic first tests that you can have. And um, he looked at it and said, well, I I don't really know exactly what this is, but it's not normal. And that was back in the 1980s. So um, I was on medication for many years. So the electrical parts of the heart muscle were kind of (laughs) screwy with you. Well, yes. So I I like to think of the heart kind of as a house. Okay. And um, there are many different parts of that house. So if you think of the, the house has walls, the heart has walls. And um, the walls of the heart can be strong or can be weak, and so can the walls of the heart. Um, the heart has valves, and uh, a house has, has doorways where you go in between each room. Doorways, like valves, open and close, those can have problems. And the most common problems that we hear are um, about the heart are the plumbing problems, which is the arteries getting blocked, and the electrical problems, which is the heart rhythms. So you can have all of those things independently, together. They affect each other. And going back to the, the women in heart diseases, you know, a lot of women don't realize that all of these things fall under heart disease. And they may attribute their symptoms to something completely different without realizing it truly is their heart. Wow. We are talking this morning to Elise Bryson uh, about this year's Go Red for Women and uh, Rose Laporte. Go Red National Go Red for Women Day is this Friday, right? February third. February third. February third. <laughs> We're going to all wear, wear red uh, around the office, around schools, around the shopping malls, and people say, "Why is everybody wearing red?" And and we'll answer them. What's the like the nice quick answer to say when say, "Hey, how come everybody's wearing red?" What's the answer you've you've got for them, Elise? I usually just say I'm I'm raising awareness for heart disease. And people can learn more about what we're talking about, right? Heart disease, the, the American Heart Association and Seattle in particular. Let's see if I have the uh, website right. It is go... No, it's not. See? I knew I was on the wrong page. Why don't you tell me while I look it up? It's heart.org it. backslash go red Seattle. I knew it. I had on the other page. Thank you, Elise. <laughs> heart.org backslash go red Seattle or heart.org backslash go red Tacoma. Uh, along with the uh, National Wear Red Day, there's a Go Red for Women luncheon comes up uh, this time of year also, right? There is. There's one on Thursday, March 16th at Benaroya Hall, and I'll actually be speaking at that one. And then there's one in Tacoma on Tuesday, April 25th at the Museum of Glass. Oh, that's a nice place for a lunch in the really Museum pretty, of Glass. Really yeah. pretty, It's very nice. Yeah, Benaroya Hall's a beautiful place, too. So you <laughs> are, you're a speaker. You're the keynote speaker, is that right? I you am. You get to tell your story in I front of other people. I spoke in Tacoma last year. And apparently they, they they asked me to come back, so maybe I was funny or maybe I got to the point. Hopefully a little of both. Well, okay. So as we're talking about this and we're talking about uh, paying attention to our bodies and we talked about symptoms, um, there's a, a phrase, know your numbers, right? Did, did you know your numbers, Elise, or did you even know that there were numbers we're supposed to pay attention to? Uh, Do you mean like my phone number? I know no, that. No, <laughs> no. I meant your social security number. No, you... Uh, 
So, yeah, about our, our heart health. Uh, no, I did not know those numbers. Yeah, and, and as we, beyond uh, blood pressure, that's the, like the first one I can think of. What are we supposed to know about our, our numbers? What does that mean? So we're talking mostly about um, blood test numbers like total cholesterol, the breakdown of your cholesterol, the good cholesterol, which is the HDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, um, blood pressure, which you talked about, blood sugar. Um, Diabetes is one of the very um, most important uh, risk factors for coronary artery disease. Um, So knowing what your blood sugar is. And um, body mass index, which can be an intimidating number, especially for women, because we don't ever want to admit to what our weight is. Um, but body mass index is a, um, a measurement of your height and your weight, and it comes up with a specific number that tells you if you have a high number based on how tall you are and how much you weigh, you're more at risk for coronary disease. Is that because of then your heart muscle and all the things that make up the heart have to work harder to get blood and oxygen to all it the is. rest of that it's body kind of, mass? It's body multifactorial, mass really, because someone who has a high body mass index um, typically also will have other issues because of it. Um, it's very closely related to having high blood pressure as well um, and um, closely linked with diabetes and high cholesterol. So knowing what that number is and where you fall can um, make you much more aware of your risk and um, hopefully pay attention to it and do something about it. And I want to go one more thing on risk before we get to treating these and, and managing. Uh, is your family history, how important is that? Is that like always a determining factor or it's partial? or? It, it is part of the, the picture. We don't really have an idea of exactly what that means. Um, we do know that heart disease runs in families. I particularly have a um, both sides of my family. My father died at a young age of heart disease, so I am at risk because of him. Um, so even though I don't have diagnosed coronary disease as of yet, um, it's something that I certainly personally pay attention to. Um, so um, heart disease in a, um, a family member, mother, father, sister, brother, um, that it is developed um, before the age of 65 is a very strong risk factor. Mm. And, and as we, so now let's switch to lowering the risk that we're talking about. Elise, um, what did you learn after you were considered a cardiac patient now, how you can manage and lower the risk? What are the things they tell you to do and how easy is it to change? I don't know, is it lifestyle or is it just one or two things that I cut out or one or two things I add? Tell us about the well, managing Well, you know, you only risk. have to change one thing and that's everything, right? <laughs> so for me, in my experience, um, the most obvious thing was that I need to cut way back on my stress. I had very high stress levels. Stress um, levels. Is, that's pretty easy to say in one sentence, cut down your stress. Sure. People mm-hmm. have run a pretty... Uh, you, did you say you're running your own company? I was. And I was running, running a company at the a time. Family. Yeah. And a family. So yeah. how do well, we do for that? For me, I um, I started doing really simple things like meditation, walking my dogs, adult coloring, less screen time. But I also paid attention to my diet. Like, you know, I had to break up with sugar, which is not easy to do. And it doesn't mean I don't still have sugar from time to time. But really being more careful on on not only what I put in my body, but how I'm treating my body. You mentioned meditation, I and I'm trying to. I think I've seen this across uh, a number of medical um, 
you know, problems that people have, different kinds of uh, medical problems, uh, is yoga. Is, is yoga a treatment, Rose, that's becoming a little more in vogue that doctors are saying? Just get in a yoga class, and, and you'll find out that not only your stress has changed, but your body and your exercise in, in a very low-impact way actually changes you. It does, and, and I've recommended yoga to many patients who are limited by other issues where they can't. Everybody thinks, ex- when, I, when we say exercise or be active, that it's running or you know, yeah, you getting on a treadmill. Yeah, you got to get out there and learn how to be a marathon and, or CrossFit. Yeah, <laughs> it's really not. I mean, 30 minutes at a time, you know, at minimum three times a week is to stay heart healthy is recommended. So that's not really a lot. Say that again now. 30 minutes at a time, three times a week, kind of minimum is what's recommended to keep your heart healthy. And that we are talking about something that's like aerobic exercise, but that means walking consistently at a get a good clip where you feel like you're actually expending some energy to do that. A brisk walk. A brisk walk, you're... not where you're walking your dog and you have to stop every five seconds for the dog to yeah. sniff or do anything else. Um, so something as simple as, you know, walking 15 minutes in one direction and turning around and coming back is is very simple. And if you're just starting exercise, we always tell you to start slow and start with just a little bit of a time and then build up over time. And I'm going to, we didn't say this, smoking. Did either <laughs> of you smoke before your heart problem no. or did or cut I did. it out? I, I was a smoker in my 20s for, um, you know, over 10 years, but I had quit uh, when I turned 30 or 31. So it had been nearly a decade that I had not been smoking, but uh, there was definitely a time in my life where I was a smoker. But smoking definitely does, I mean, that's a... It's huge. They've huge. identified that as a real connection. It puts stress on the heart, right? Puts stress on the heart. Puts stress um, specifically on the coronary arteries themselves, just themselves, not just the other things that it does. It raises your heart rate. It raises your blood pressure. It raises your stress because the nicotine that is in tobacco and in vapor, um, the smokeless tobacco that we see so prevalent now, those are not harmless. Uh, They contain nicotine, and nicotine is the drug that affects your heart. Mm. And I also want to go to women still run our houses, no matter how equal we think we are as a society. Women take care of us men, and they also, so they're taking care of the families. They're putting what's in the pantry, right? They're, Mm -hmm. They're shopping, and so eating correctly. Did you change and did you find, you mentioned sugar. Are there other things that are, look, if I shave this and shave that amount of, or the way I buy this, or that are, you know, a, a quick way to change a habit or not? Is it? I really went to trying to cut out processed things and processed just eat things. whole foods, fruits, vegetables, a lot of vegetables and proteins, lean proteins. And and not, you know, stopping at the fast food, you know, every... That's what a lot of busy people um, end up doing is is prepared meals or um, fast food. And the prepared meals themselves are not so bad, especially now. You can get a lot of fresh-made prepared meals at various grocery stores, things that you can pick up. But reading labels, being very conscious of what you're eating, not just the amount of what you're eating, um, and and being just really being aware being aware of what you're eating. Yeah, and, and it sounds being silly, aware right? Of your you know? body and your numbers. And we've said a couple of things. Yeah. I also got, I had a Fitbit and then I got an Apple Watch. And I really, that was really motivating to me because I could see how many steps I was getting every day. I could track my exercise. I could track my sleep. And for, for some reason, watching those numbers really, really helped me continue to move forward. And what, so the, the Go Red uh, campaign, 
a few things they can do around town in the coming week, right? Um, and as people participate, I know they're they're asking people to like use social media. Yeah, you can take selfies of yourself wearing red. Maybe maybe you put a red hoodie on your dog wearing red. Okay. But whatever the pictures are in social media, you can use hashtag Go Red Seattle or hashtag Go Red Tacoma. And that's just another way to share and spread the word. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also go shopping at Macy's. Okay, this Ooh, is what I... You yeah. have a, a sponsor. Macy's always gets involved with this, they right? They do yes. every year, yeah. You can go and buy it. It's a $3 uh, red dress pen. Um, and that will provide you some discounts at Macy's as well. But the $3 actually goes back to the American Heart Association, and it does go back locally. Well, and so raising money is part of this, too. I mean, you mentioned research before. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of research can be done. There is. And and like I said, you know, the majority of the research we have historically has been um, based on men as the, as the primary subjects that we studied. And, um, you know, it's just a... a Women have different symptoms. They they have different progression of heart disease. Women, um, when they go through treatment for heart disease, they don't do as well as men. Um, women who have bypass surgery statistically don't recover as quickly, don't recover as uh, completely as men do. Hmm. And are, are just regular GPs, doctors... Um Learning and still learning. That, oh, I gotta look at women a little differently as uh, as I think about heart health. I mean, did you say you were diagnosed wrong at first, or just thought not wrong? They just couldn't find out what why I was having the symptoms I was having. And at that point, they did direct me to a cardiologist. Oh, good. And between yeah. the time that I made that appointment. And the time I was recommended to make that appointment, I actually ended up calling 911 one day because I was home by myself and had by far the worst symptoms I had had up until that point. But once I got into the, to a cardiologist, then things really moved forward re- really quickly and they were able to identify a problem. And we tried to do some education with the, the community providers. Um, you know, it, it's very simple to fall back into the fact that, that they can recognize a man man having chest pain symptoms or chest tightness. Um, but when a woman, Elisa's age particularly, that comes in, um, it's not the first thing that they think about, and even still. Uh, we are going to run out of time, ladies. Uh, before we do, I want to make sure we get a few things in. So uh, this year's Go Red for Women uh, National Wear Red Day. It's this Friday, right? February the 3rd. 3rd. Yeah. Um, there's luncheons coming up, again, both in Tacoma and Seattle. March 16th in Seattle at Benaroya Hall and April 25th in Tacoma at the Museum of Glass. And this is like uh, inspirational speakers and a presentation on on how to, you know, just a lot of good people talking and raising money and awareness. Uh, People can buy tickets, I'm guessing, online. Is that the kind of thing? Okay. And again, online, let's give the websites, right? Heart.org backslash Go Red Seattle or heart.org backslash Go Red Tacoma. And um, what is something like you, like if we're going to wrap up here in a minute, what do you tell people or what do you want people to always remember or take with them as you've been talking about your own uh, heart health or your own story or their heart health or what do you always like to convey to people? For for me, it's heart disease is not one kind of thing that affects one kind of person. It's, as we just discussed, it's many things and it can affect all of us. And uh, women need to pay attention, not just, you know, to taking care of their spouse and getting them to the doctor, but taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And to echo that, that's what I learned is I, in order to be able to do everything else I do, I do have to actually put myself first in order to help all the other people that are in my world.
Yeah, that's right. That's sort of what they tell the uh, tell us on the airplane. They say, get your oxygen mm-hmm. mask exactly on yourself that. so that you that can analogy. help yes. someone else. You have to be able to help someone mm-hmm. else. You have to be in good shape. Thank you guys so much for coming and sharing today. You're welcome. We have been talking to Elise Bryson, a Go Red ambassador for the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women. That's this Friday. Wear red this Friday, right? And uh, Rose Laporte, a cardiac nurse practitioner with CHI Franciscan Health. Elise and Rose, thank you guys so much for being here, coming in and sharing your stories and uh, thank you so much for what the Go Red for Women campaign does to fight heart disease. Thank you. Thank you. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels and I feel privileged to have Dr. Carlene Brown with us this morning. Dr. Brown is music. She is the director of the music therapy department at Seattle Pacific University. Music therapy might be a new phrase to your ears, and if so, be ready to be amazed about this field that has some decades of history to it, but is really just gaining a great foothold here in Washington State. So let's meet Dr. Brown and learn more. Talking about music therapy, this is really a new concept for me, but I must say I am so excited by this really vast field and all the potential and really fun, but so much learning and so much that can be done for for everyone, I think, is what it is. But that's just me with what little I've read. So, Dr. Brown, give us an insight into what music therapy is, because you've certainly devoted a lot of your life to this. I have. Um, as a musician, I think um, any and all musicians would understand what it means to have the power of music, to use it as a tool. And the opportunity with music therapy is to be intentional with that use of music. And the populations that we serve could be any number from infant through uh, senior level of age. But it really is using music as a means to work with individuals to um, meet goals, individual clinical goals. So it varies, and the power of music is really um, quite moving uh, as a career to pursue the interest of how do you use music with individuals. And you certainly then, as a musician, use it that way. But then you made this, I would say, you took a fork in the road, essentially, and are pursuing music therapy. So what happened in your life or what was going on around you that you thought music therapy this is what needs to happen i hear this actually often from a high school student uh and that's what happened to me is that um going through those high school years and how difficult they were music was the way to calm me down to get me focused to experience the range of emotions i am a classically trained pianist I love playing, and so whether it was through live music engagement or just listening to music, I just appreciated the impact music had on me. And it was a high school counselor that talked to me about my interest in psychology and the interest in music, and she said, did you know that there was a field called music therapy? And that is typically what is happening with high school students. They didn't know that there was a way to marry the two. How do I use music that is not just about performance, but I really wanted to find a way to serve and use music, um, one-on-one in small group settings. And the two interests seemed to come together. And um, really, once I started that path, I've never looked back. Isn't that just so wonderful and amazing to have a passion in that area, to find 
what it is that suits you and to be able to live your life doing the work that you love. Yeah, I mean, um, I enjoy playing. I enjoy that moment of making music with great musicians. But there's even more joy when you are working with a child and you're singing a song that they seem to lock into. When you bring a piece of music to someone in the hospital and they say, that's my best friend. And I understand what they mean about having music be that piece, that, that's what's needed in the middle of the night um, in a hospital setting. A way to calm down when, um, whether I am playing for an individual or within a group and you can see one's shoulders start to lower and they're breathing differently. Um, it's, a, it's a way to use one's music to connect. And that is what you're doing. So you came from being a student of music therapy, having your degree, and did you then move to the West Coast? Did you move to the Seattle area to do the work? Actually, no. I moved to from Boston area, and I was hired as a music educator and someone who actually had the training in music therapy fairly quickly when I earned my undergraduate degree. Uh, I was in the school systems in Boston, and yet I really wanted to understand more this notion of the power of music and was not interested in a performance degree and other types of degrees that are typical for someone with a music background and found um, a unique program at the University of Washington in Seattle. It's called Systematic Musicology, and it's a research degree because I wanted to understand really what are the mechanisms that really do allow music to influence behavior. And uh, I was one of the few uh, in this region that understood uh, music therapy. I was the only one that was a graduate student in the department pursuing this. So my area of coming to uh, Seattle was to understand research behind the importance, the efficacy, the what is it about music that has the potential to change behavior. And so research has now become my area of focus. Along with teaching, though, because you are at Seattle Pacific University and you are teaching music therapy or theory is one of the classes. That's the what the freshman class that you teach? Yes, I teach uh, first year uh, sequence of music theory, um, which all music majors take. Uh, and that's a way for me to, to actually get to know all the music majors in the department. But about eight years ago, I had the opportunity to develop um, a curriculum for music therapy. We are the only program in the state of Washington. I've had enormous support from the administration of Seattle Pacific to um, develop this program, and it came from the students. I didn't come to SPU with this notion of starting the program, but at SPU, the students really wanted to understand how could they use their music in non-traditional ways. They perform, they're in churches, they are uh, gigging all the time. But it was something about using music to serve others that was a hook. And one thing led to another. Again, I've received tremendous support. And so we now have a music therapy program. It's very strong. Um, And so I teach core courses in music therapy. I advise the students, those that are interested in coming to the program, as well as those that we have in the program, all the way through graduation. But I also teach other classes in the department. And it's a four-year degree? Four-plus years. Okay. It's a fairly rigorous degree program. Students take, uh, they are first and foremost musicians, 
And so they took all of the classes of a music major. And then there are additional core courses that are required from the American Music Therapy Association, courses in psychology, quite a few psychology classes, such as general psychology, abnormal psychology, developmental psychology. These are courses that are expected of a music therapy student. Um, anatomy and physiology is typical. And then we have core courses um, uh, in our department, the psychology of music, music and special ed, um, music and medicine, music and mental health. These are core classes that students begin to understand what does it mean to functionally use music with various populations. They have to understand the theory, the research, and the clinical aspects of music therapy. They also go through practicum experiences at the undergraduate level. So at minimum of 180 hours of being out in the field supervised by board certified music therapists. And that's a basic four-year curriculum. And it, again, it's fairly rigorous because they are also meeting university requirements toward graduation. But they're not done. Um, uh, after the four years of academic work, there's an expectation that all music therapy students, they apply and they compete for national position in an internship. So our students go out on their own and seek and secure an internship for six months, typically non-paid, somewhere in the country. And after the six months of full-time internship, they're still not done. They have to then sit for a three-hour board exam. And if they successfully pass that board exam, that national exam, then they get to earn the designation um, music therapist board certified. So it is quite a program. There's quite a commitment that's needed. Yes. There are many skills that are required, first and foremost being a musician, strong musician, and a, a desire to serve with that gift. You're, you're, I tell my students often, it's not about you. It's how you use what you have to serve someone else. Um, and so there's quite a bit that's expected of a music therapy student, but then the rewards are huge. And it sounds as though there has been a great interest in it, which is why you have developed this program. And have you seen those results? Have the students then continued with it? Have they really immersed themselves in it and graduated from it? Oh, yeah. The, the students of... Um uh, Seattle Pacific University Music Therapy. I'm partial toward them, <laughs> of course, but uh, they're they're fairly incredible. I mean, there's there's um, quite an audition and interviewing process that we've established uh, to accept students in the program. So there is a demand for the program, and we interview. We're looking for a number of qualities, musicianship being one, but it's beyond that. A sense of empathy, a sense of serving. Uh, a maturity because you are working with vulnerable individuals and uh, and a work ethic means a great deal. I, I tell my students, I, I never ask them if they're practicing. That's an assumption. Um, so um, our students are, once they complete the program, um, fortunately they are being hired. Uh, music therapy has become one of those jobs in the nation that's considered a cool job right now um, because of the um, having a degree program in the state of Washington and our students being out in the community doing practicum work 
we have more employers now seeking our students for hire. Um, but some of our students, when they do uh, an internship in another part of the country, they actually uh, become employed there. I just received a text yesterday that our latest graduate just passed her board exam and has a full-time position in San Diego. Wow. Very proud of her, and I get those texts, and that's very rewarding. Um, well, I have students in New York and Philadelphia, um, Chicago, and sometimes they choose to stay there, and they are earning good jobs. Um, but those jobs are also developing in Washington State. Um, I think it's partly due to um, an awareness of what music therapy is. I think our students are huge ambassadors when they go out into the field. Um, we also have a core group of um, highly professional and established music therapists here in this region who are doing phenomenal work, uh, who are mentoring our students. And so the level of professionalism and um, what it means to have a music therapist on staff is beginning to, um, there's an awareness growing. And so now there are more jobs than there are music therapy students. Well, that is definitely a big plus it's a big and plus. has to be encouraging to those who are really considering the field. It's like, I'm not going to invest all this time and, and money, and of money. course, yes. uh, and, not, and come out and not have a position. Those positions are there. So that's definitely very exciting. And you mentioned the population that's worked with. I mean, it's the gamut from infants to geriatric and obviously all in between as well. When you, so can we take a, a little look at then at those populations with infants? What's going on with babies and music therapy? Um, there's quite a bit of um, of work, particularly in Florida, with um, um, with sucking and the ability of using music to uh, stimulate sucking and 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 teaching moms how to use music as a means to, especially with newborns and um, um, premature in infants, um, how to uh, console but also teach the sucking mechanism. And music is a way to trigger um, uh, that as an example. Um, but through the gamut of ages, uh, you're, you're correct in that um, music therapists are working in the school systems. Um, we have a number of students uh, here in this region who are working with children on the um, autism spectrum, for instance. Um, how to use music as a way to uh, increase socialization, how to use music as a way to focus and, and give um, direction and appropriate responses, um, working with the teachers in the classroom, um, using music as a trigger and as a mechanism for learning. Um, we have... Even in downtown Seattle, we have um, students working with homeless youth uh, who are walking in uh, to um, New Horizons, for instance, as a means, as a opportunity to just engage in a um, uh, w with no expectations of just being there, and with a student make music. Some of our students are teaching, maybe guitar, maybe drumming. Uh, there are group sessions. Um, it's um, an opportunity where there's no stress, no expectation. You can just come as you are, and music is the medium for acceptance and safety. And sometimes lyrics are being um, 
uh, created as a way to express what's going on in one's life. Um, they can sing, they can act out appropriately, and music is the medium to do so. Um, we have students who are working with older populations as a means to help with reality orientation and uh, movement, keeping their bodies engaged and um, um, uh, memory. Um, there's a host of reasons why um, music therapists are used with older populations. Um, socialization is also a huge one. Um, so it, just even within this region, um, the hospital settings, using music as a means for controlling pain, particularly invasive treatments. Um, music therapists are at Children's Hospital, they're at Swedish Hospital, they're at the UW Medi Medical Center these days, um, because physicians are also seeing, and caregivers, how music can have a difference with an individual, whether it's passing time, whether it's distraction, whether it's relaxation, um, as a means to just deal and cope. Um, not everybody wants verbal interaction. Mm -hmm. There are ways to create music and express oneself without having to put words into it. Um, and a music therapist can work with not only the individual, but the family as well. Um, so it does run the gamut from premature infants through aged uh, seniors um, at an older age. Um, it's as unique and as varied as a music therapist can bring to the table. And then they perhaps also adapt with whatever's coming into the program and the people that they meet. Yes, and that's, you know, that's a fundamental difference, for instance, between uh, music education and music therapy, where there, there are no lesson plans. You don't walk in with a prescribed, we're going to do this today. A music therapist that's trained understands you come in with enough of, um, I tell students, what do you, what's in your back pocket? What are you ready to present? Because assessment is key. You're walking in to assess how is that individual? Uh, how has their day been? Uh, are there meds involved? Are there any interactions you should know about? And so that means you are starting with where that individual is at to meet a goal. So coming in with a game plan, potentially, but there's an adaptability, there's a creativity involved, there's a need to be in the moment, and you're going to meet that individual where they are, where they're at, and you understand what the goal is that could be set by a physician or a social worker or educational individual, but how we're going to get there is going to be in the moment, using music. So exciting, and they're just seems this limitless potential of things that, that can be done. And when you mentioned dealing with pain, controlling pain, that really intrigues me. That's such an issue in our society, uh, pain pain control, I guess, but there's been over-medication, medications don't work beyond a certain place. What happens with music that's able to deal with this? And that is my research area. That is my fascination ever since I was at the University of Washington um, working through a dissertation at Virginia Mason Hospital studying the effect of music on pain management. And the bottom line is that because there's a psychology behind pain perception that it can be um, influenced, um, music can be a medium 
for individuals for the purpose of distraction, for the purpose of relaxation. Um, there are um, um, there's a way to use music um, that is personable. Um, uh, there is no one particular piece of music that will work for any one individual. That's where music therapist works with people to understand who they are and what matters to them. But if you can get someone to break the cycle of tension and pain and allow relaxation, that's uh, a chance to heal. If you can alter time in terms of not getting medication for the next hour, and yet I can make that hour go by faster and easier, then that's a goal. Uh, and these are techniques that can be taught to individuals so that working with a music therapist so that you can learn triggers to use music as a means to um, relax one's mind, relax one's body, focus on what's important, using music as a focal point. And you can do that at 3 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. But teachable skills of using music to control pain which is so great. You don't have to go pop a pill. Uh, we know the disasters that have happened with that, uh, the addictions that have occurred. But if we get addicted to music, that probably is soothing the body. And being able to talk to individuals more about how we can control our pain to some extent, there is a means of mind over body, how do you use music purposefully, intentionally? And that's how a music therapist can work with individuals. And we've been doing that um, to help steady uh, gait, for instance, when you're walking. And if there's an uncomfortableness, how do you use rhythm to walk and and, um, to even lower one's heartbeat, even? Um, So understanding how the connection of using music to alter one's physiology... Um, there is a connection and there's a great deal of research behind it and so the goal is having music therapists on site to work with individuals to understand that the pill is a way but it's not the only way exactly and it's also so interesting to hear you say it's not a particular piece of music that everyone listens to it's that that's really chosen based on the person and we all kind of i guess resonate in different ways everything is very individualized it sounds like exactly that's a fundamental um key piece at least for me and uh with um, our students is that when i say it's not about them i mean that it is not about their preference to understand what and how music has been used with another individual a client's life uh anything anything will go if someone wants rock music, that's fine. Uh, the only thing I, I get concerned about is maybe the volume level. But if that's their comfort zone, if that's going to bring back memories, if that's a point of joy for someone that can, um, again, if it's an issue of uh, changing the time frame of how long they're having a procedure or distraction from something innocuous that's happening to them, um, then anything in all is appropriate as far as I'm concerned and it's talking to an individual about now what might work um, what you listen to when you're um, in a very difficult commute might be different from what you're listening to when you're cleaning your house which might be diff- different than when you are jogging 
we use music in different ways. And so just teasing that a little bit and understanding, okay, you're not feeling great, but I bet you there's something that we could find that's going to help you feel better. And even that state of mind is better than being in a place of worry and tension and concern. And if I can do anything to alter that, then it's worth it. And listening to the music, is it to be played to fill the room? Uh, do people listen on their headphones? Do they listen with earbuds? Does that matter? It's all of the above. Okay. Um, it, and one that you didn't mention is live music. Ah, yeah. Right? Sure. So Absolutely. it really depends on the setting. Um, uh, personally, live music has a, has a way of filling that space. Um, engaging an individual, um, uh, you know, I, I personally also, uh, you know, I listen to music via speakers and headphones, and as most folks do, but it is that engagement of having live music in the moment that has, I feel, the most impact. Um, if a music therapist has the ability to make live music with an individual, we're able to actually watch that individual, I could match their breathing rate. I could match their gait. I could match their body. I can see if I'm on the right track or wrong. Um, a, a concept that I talk about with my students, especially in the music and medicine classes, uh, we talk about if music can heal, can it not also be at the other end of the continuum? So we can hurt with music. We can make someone feel um, even sadder. Um, if you put the wrong piece of music on for me, I can feel, feel um, the tension. I can feel negative. I could be annoyed. I could be. There are a host of emotions that can go with that. And so, just putting on um, a piece of music and, and putting headphones on me would be you're taking a huge risk. Because what if I don't like that? And what if I don't have the means to exactly tell you that? Yes. So we don't play around with the power of music. We take it quite seriously. And the only way to do that is to be, the best way is to be um, in the space with the individual, preferably live music, to watch and make sure that we're offering the best we can in terms of care. And then outside of that, making sure that the music that is being listened to is what the individual wants to hear. Um, there are pieces of music that would aggravate me in a, within seconds if I heard it. That defeats the purpose. Exactly. Right? There is a continuum. And as a music therapist, if we are to aim to, to serve, to uh, make someone feel better, to make it... Um, healing take place we're aiming for something that's going to work for that individual the only way to know that is a to ask them and in lieu of that watch carefully and observe and that's where you were saying the student who comes to the program needs to be someone who is compassionate and empathetic and you're able to determine that and i would imagine they already expect that and if if it's not working, do they leave the program? Has that happened? Oh, sure. Um, uh, especially the 18-year-old who comes with uh, a, an idea of what music therapy is all about. Um, but again, there's, there's not only the academic rigor. It's quite a program. 
to get through. But then early on, we are one of the few programs in the in the country, actually, that places students in their freshman year in practicum sites um, to observe, to understand what it means to do the work. Um, most of our students not only embrace it, but they thrive. This is what they wanted. For some students, it didn't quite fit the picture of what they thought, or it, it, they just knew within themselves they did not have the capacity either musically or um, just that level of sensitivity of what it means to be patient and, and the number of things that it goes into a therapeutic environment. Um, and so I work with students to often um, gauge how they're doing in terms of their vocation. Um, and that's fine if they have taken a look at the field and decided this isn't for me. That that's great. Right. Yes, that's what it's all about. Yes, what it's all about. <laughs> but we have found that here is a an intriguing, really compelling field that is really still quite new, but a great opportunity for someone who loves music, loves people, loves to be of service. There is such great opportunity and we are going to talk further about what is happening here in our Puget Sound area. But Dr. Carleen Brown, thank you so much for giving us this really great insight into music therapy Thanks, here in the Seattle area.